0: Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Fifteen years ago, after Hurricane Michelle devastated Cuba, the government realized it needed to train emergency medical teams to deal with natural disasters. It figured this was not the last time severe weather or natural disasters would strike the island nation. Known as the Henry Reeve Brigade, it is a team of 8,000 medical professionals who are specially trained in dealing with disasters and epidemics. It has been deployed in 22 countries around the world since it began. It has responded to hurricanes in Guatemala, floods in Bolivia, and an earthquake in China among countless other catastrophes. The local chapter of the Council of Canadians, has nominated this medical team for a Nobel Peace Prize. In this interview, you will learn more about the Council of Canadians, the medical team's work, and how the Canadian government turned down a chance to let the Henry Reeve Brigade help with its pandemic response. I'm so pleased to have with me today Rick Arnold, a member of the board of the Northumberland chapter of the Council of Canadians. Welcome to Consider This, Northumberland. Thank you very much, Rob. Can you tell us about Cuba's initial response to the pandemic, and why it was so exemplary and got your attention?
1: Yes, Rob. Um, I uh, well, our our chapter has been uh, following for the last year all the developments during COVID-19 that have been taking place, and in particular some of the initiatives that uh, remarkable initiatives that Cuba has uh, under have has undertaken in the last uh, twelve months um we uh got uh, interested in this partly because uh back in april of last year we saw a news item uh, which said that the uh, deputy prime minister of canada uh, rejected a request from about 34 first nations in manitoba for a, a medical contingent pandemic trained medical contingent to come from Cuba to help them prepare for what they knew was going to be uh, a difficult time for their uh, isolated communities, given that they didn't themselves have a very strong health care system uh, protecting them. Um, so once we saw that, we said, well, wait a moment. Uh, you know, the Council of Canadians were interested in human rights. Uh, we're interested in, in uh, indigenous peoples. We're interested in water questions and we're interested in trade questions, uh, international components. So we felt uh, that we should send a letter uh, to uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and asking her to please uh, review that decision and hopefully reverse it. Uh, So that was in April of last year. We heard nothing back from her or her office. So a couple of months on, on we got back talking about this, and we decided, well, Canada being now the only country that has actually formally refused Cuban medical help, uh, that leaves a bit of a black eye. Why don't we, as a, as a local group, start a process to get them nominated uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize? So, that's how it sort of got going, of course, we're just located in Northumberland slash Coburg, and uh, so we needed help to go much further, and what we did is we uh, were able to put forward a resolution at the annual Council of Canadians, the national meeting held in June of uh, last year, and uh, it uh, was approved uh, by a big majority of the members, there several hundred on the call, and uh, we got support from the staff uh, to go ahead with
0: this. Why Cuba? Why did the First Nations reach out to Cuba? Why didn't they turn to the Canadian government or their provincial government to do this? Well,
1: interestingly enough, Rob, uh, early in 2020, a delegation of uh, indigenous leaders from Manitoba had actually gone to Cuba. Uh, just when the first uh, first uh, inklings that we as a global community were going to be facing something very serious soon, they actually traveled to Cuba. They had heard about uh, the fact that Cuba has uh, a training program for medics, doctors and nurses in the whole area of pandemics and natural disasters. This actually was begun, the, the Cubans foresaw that we were heading into a millennium with climate change bringing a uh, increasing number of crises to be faced by, by various countries in, in along, around the world. And they set up a training session, particularly in the health field, uh, because they knew that Ebola, SARS, and other things were coming our way, which they did. And they responded to them in Africa and uh, SARS in the Americas as well. And so they were in an amazing position, having more than 4,000 trained medics in uh, pandemics care uh, to be able to respond to countries that reached out to them. Uh, because in their own situations, uh, they had uh, medical systems that were fragile. And uh, in the case of Italy, which was one of the first countries last year to call on the Cubans, uh, if you could remember, they were very hard hit in the Lombardy district in about uh, March, April of last year. Uh, Their ICU units were overwhelmed. and They just didn't have enough doctors to care uh, for the number of critically ill patients from Covid nineteen at that time, they called in a major contingent of the Cubans who immediately set about uh, uh, helping, supporting uh, the frontline medical workers in Italy, uh, in the in that north uh, northern area of the country. Like that, Rob, uh, in the course of the year, uh, many countries have reached out to Cuba. In fact, a total of forty countries have reached out to them to send contingents, and they have they have sent contingents uh these is usually an interim situation right they're not planning to stay for long but they they go because uh, things spiral out of control and uh beds in hospitals etc are bec- become non-existent for people who the increasing number of people who who catch the COVID 19. so uh they have sent uh sent these uh, contingents uh, from what they call the, it, the the overall effort, Rob, is called the Henry Reeve Brigade, named after a U.S. soldier that fought alongside the Cubans uh, back in the Spanish, the war against Spain uh, back in the 1800s. And uh, so they, send, they can send contingents, and they have most recently, just to give you a f- sense of what's going on, Uh, Both Mexico City and Panama City have actually had a situation in January-February where they didn't have enough doctors and nurses who weren't themselves either sick or extremely stressed out to handle the COVID cases they were facing in those two cities. So they called in uh, the Cubans. The Cubans sent 500 doctors, medics, uh, to Mexico City for a two-month period or so Now, many of them have just returned back to Cuba, Um, but it gives you a sense of their capabilities. Um, So that's one side of it. One thing we may or may not touch on on this this discussion today is the fact that they are only one of two countries in the Americas that have vaccines for COVID-19, the other one being the United States. And so that's another amazing story parallel to this one that we're talking about today. This led us, uh, Rob, to uh, go forward to say the Cubans need recognition. They're certainly not getting it from the Canadian government at the moment. Why don't we do a sort of a citizen's uh, effort uh, to get a nomination together and to, to send it in to the Oslo Committee. The Nobel Peace Prize is handled uh, by uh, a, a sort of a group of uh, people uh, elected every year that are, live in Oslo or in that area. Um, and so that's, that's what we did uh, after we got uh, the okay of uh, the Council of Canadians National.
0: You talk about the Northumberland chapter of the Council of Canadians. So who are the Council of Canadians? So the Council of Canadians uh, uh, has was
1: formed... Primarily in the late 1980s, and the, the big thing back then, along with some other Canadian organizations, unions and others, uh, was the question of the coming of free trade. Uh, the one with the United States in the late 80s first, the, the acronym here, that was called CUSTA, Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, and then that was followed shortly thereafter in the early 90s by the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Uh, So during that time period, the Council of Canadians was one of the key organizations setting up uh, opposing that type of free trade, which we call sort of the neoliberal free trade, which is mainly going to benefit big corporations and not necessarily the citizens of the countries involved, um, and trying to posit that trade is good, but there's another type of trade uh, which we should actually be looking at. So with that sort of double focus, that's when the Council of Canadians was uh, uh, launched. Uh, you may have heard of, of Maude Barlow. She is one of the key founders of the Council of Canadians, has been a long-time uh, chair or honorary chair uh, of the Council. And uh, so she's written several books uh, related to issues that the Council of Canadians have uh have taken forward over the years. So that's where it started. Uh, It grew uh, during the 90s quite precipitously. Uh, uh, So the council now has uh, more, I'm not quite sure about the exact number, Rob, but it's something in excess of 150,000 members across the country and has about some 42 or 43 chapters, just like the Northumberland chapter, uh, spread out, uh, along the, around the country. So, uh,
0: that's the, that's the structure of the Council okay. of Canadians. It's an interesting one in the
1: sense that it does allow, uh, the chapters, uh, with, with the support and help of the national office to take on certain issues and have it, have the opposition, whether it be written or in the streets, uh, Coordinated in various provinces across Canada. So it gives you a, a sort of a bigger impact, if you will, on things that uh, the Council of Canadians, like the question of, of, of water, climate crisis now, those areas uh, the Council of Canadians can handle uh, a uh, more organized response and try to get our political leaders, hopefully, to move on some of these questions that are uh, major and are threatening our civilization in the not-too-distant future.
0: So well, that's, 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 the, that's a little bit of you know okay. thumbnail sketch of the Council. Okay, so how long has there been a chapter in Northumberland? The Northumberland chapter, uh, I actually wasn't one
1: of the ones that began it, uh, but I, I would be uh, guessing that we're talking about uh, 15 to 20 years, I believe. Uh, the chapter here um, and before I joined it in about about uh, eight or nine years ago they had spent quite a lot of time uh, researching and writing about the trade agreements that Canada were signing not only the NAFTA and what to do about that but the new ones uh, with the European Union uh, and so uh, that that's uh, one part of what Northumberland chapter does it has a trade group that looks uh, follows the various agreements that are out there or about to be signed by Canada oh. and and uh, so that's uh, a little bit about uh, okay. about us
0: how many members does it have
1: it's not a huge organization uh, it's uh, probably no larger than about 20 25 people uh, but of that I would say there's maybe seven or eight that are the key uh, people who put in the most time to various issues that, uh, that, that, the chapter works on.
0: Okay. It sounds to me though, that the council of Canadians really looks at sort of national international issues. Um, are there any things that it, that it does that impact Northumberland County directly?
1: Um, well, yes. Uh, for instance, uh, One of the members of the, the, up until recently, the board, but actually still on the board, a new one on the board, is also uh, a key person in the Blue Dot campaign in Northumberland. And uh, so we have one of our board members is uh, working on Blue Communities, which is a Council of Canadians initiative to get uh, municipalities to endorse uh, other forms of, drinking water other than the water that you get in plastic bottles which is then just throw away thrown away uh, so to get uh, municipalities to uh, come forward and say that they will not uh, promote the use of uh, those types of uh, bottles for water and then Blue Dot uh, which is the David Suzuki Foundation has a very strong local uh, group and uh, we've been coordinating with them on other types of water issues uh, such as, you know, Nestle's uh, taking out groundwater uh, for, their, for their production of bottled water uh, uh, and affecting communities uh, for doing so. So that, that sort of terrain is one of the areas. Then the other area which is uh, actually coming up a little bit more now is uh, we are talking with one or two uh, farmers in the area around the whole concept of agroecology, and uh so there are some two or three farmers in northumberland who feel that there has to be another approach taken to agriculture uh the farmers are not at fault uh, at as at at current you know as the way they deal with the land now they're usually uh, uh good guardians of the climate health of the area but uh there are some larger scale farms, not so much in Northumberland, although a few, uh, that uh, do do damage uh, to the environment, and there has to be some other ways of raising uh, you know, large scale uh, cattle operations and uh, large scale spraying of fields. There needs to be other ways to consider how we get our food in the future. Um, So that's another terrain that we're just starting to look into now.
0: Now, I'd like to go back and and start talking about denomination itself. So you said earlier that the government uh, did not change its mind about inviting the Cubans to come. And your group decided here in Northumberland that it wanted to nominate uh, this group of medics for a Nobel Peace Prize. Tell me how that discussion germinated. And can you tell us the process by which that discussion took and grew and moved forward?
1: Yes, I, I alluded to it uh, because we were, I guess, a little bit put out, if I can use that terminology, by the fact that we, ever, we never, ever got a, a response from the, the federal government to our request for them to review the rejection uh, of the request coming from First Nations in Manitoba and that was the sort of what cat, was a catalyst for us to say okay uh, obviously for whatever reason the federal government is not going to respond to us uh, and they've also tried to you know it's given a bit of black eye uh, to the Cubans being that and to us since it's the only country in the world that has rejected uh, Cuban doctors requested by their citizens um, so let's do something about that uh, so that we can show to a wider public that in fact the Cubans are uh, doing an amazing job of uh, care, not only at home domestically, but also internationally, uh, caring for other people. There's no other country in teaches uh, Latin American studies and Spanish. And so I reached out to him, not actually thinking that he might do it, but knowing that he had quite good contacts. And he knew actually himself quite a bit about Cuba uh, to give us some advice as to how to proceed. And uh, he said, well, you know what, I could do it. (laughs) And so we were saying, oh, right, oh, good, that's great. And uh, he did. He had He'd written, actually, it turns out he'd written one or two books on the, the whole question of what Cuba has done in the last 20 years, uh, not only in sending out medical teams for Ebola and other uh, major pandemics that have been faced, but also in training, free of charge, thousands of doctors from Africa and South America. They would come uh, to a... Uh, University in Havana uh, for two or three years they, or more. They would get the training, and then they would return back to their countries uh, to become, you know, country doctors and nurses uh, in those countries. So um, he he had written about this, and uh, so he was in a very good position to pull together uh, the type of nomination papers that they required from Oslo. And uh, he did so. Uh, and uh, by about late October, just after it, the Nobel Peace Prize for the previous year had been announced in, uh, in mid-october, I think it was, uh, he had finished uh, the documents. We looked at, that, looked at it, he sent it on uh, to Oslo. And uh, as it turns out, Rob, we were the first, the very first country to enter the nomina- a nomination. Uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize for the in, me, Cuba's medical internationalism.
0: Now, I understand, too, that yeah. the, the, you have to get endorsements as well. Hasn't this been endorsed by a number of people as well, some pretty famous people? It has. Actually,
1: Actually, we turns out, Rob, we did not have to get those endorsements, but we thought that it would be important to show that uh, many eminent Canadians along with about 17 or 18 national organizations were in agreement that the work that the Cubans were carrying out during COVID-19 was worthy of such a nomination. Um, So we reached out to, I guess, 12 or 13 eminent Canadians, uh, and almost all of them replied back fairly quickly and said, absolutely, uh, put us on your list. Now, that list, as it turns out, We're learning here as we go forward with the restrictions of Oslo on on these nominations. So Oslo is actually not that keen to get all sorts of other materials other than the papers that they want filled out, the explanations that you will give as to why uh, these people would be nominated. But they're actually not so keen to get all sorts of other papers uh, attached to it uh, but we decided that we would go ahead anyway reached out got significant support from uh, from a, quite a crew of uh, eminent Canadians uh, you know ranging from uh, Bruce Coburn uh, through to um, politicians uh, through to a couple of specialists in the fields uh, that were de- that we were dealing with and uh, so uh, we decided, okay, we'll do a blog at least uh, that'll go up on the Council of Canadians site and get that information around, so people can see that uh, the, the nomination has gotten in, but it's also supported by eminent Canadians and many national organizations.
0: Now, speaking of publishing, you've published articles pointing out the lessons Canada could learn from Cuba. What yeah. are what are those lessons?
1: We take. If we first of all, um, we'll just we'll just do a comparison. I'm, I, we're not here trying to uh, show up Canada. That's not the purpose here. But to to respond to your question, for instance, uh, already I've given you a hint that Cuba prepared for this. They knew that something like this was coming, and there will be more after this one. Um, so they had trained people already ready to go and the other things that they did as soon I think it was by, by early March, maybe late February, they had another series of meetings amongst top officials in Cuba and said that we need to start tracking, uh, tracking going house to house uh, to figure out who's vulnerable and how we're going to be able to deal with a major pandemic t- gaining a foothold in Cuba, um, so they have spent a year uh, assembling information of all sorts, which can be used by multidisciplinary medical teams in dealing with the cases that they do have in Cuba at the moment. This stands in marked contrast with what Canada did not do, which it was not basically not ready uh, for this pandemic. To it it had uh, an early warning system for many years that let it lapse uh, about three years ago so that wasn't functioning for them or for the World Health Organization that was also depending on that one and uh, they have done relatively a few uh, research pieces that inc- that include most of the population to take to take samples to understand, Who's gonna be hard hit here? What is our priority uh, in terms of uh, the actual care system we've gotta build? Can we have, uh, do we have enough ICUs? Well, it turns out that they didn't, uh, but they should have known. Uh, Do we have the PPE uh, equipment here? No. Why? Well, because it's being manufactured elsewhere by other multinational corporations uh, that don't make their home Canada. Um, so the Cubans, they face this situation not because they, everything's, uh, everything is sort of uh, optioned out to multinationals in other countries, but because they faced six decades of an economic blockade from the United States. So they literally can't get a lot of this equipment. Uh, so they had to actually make the things they made them themselves they made all of the masks they actually engineered uh, some of the ICU uh, equipment that uh, those who became gravely ill needed to get oxygen in their lungs and then as I alluded to earlier in this interview uh, they started to work right away on vaccines to try to uh, help uh, prevent the their population from getting uh, COVID-19 as as things progressed. So they actually have now in the vaccine field, they have five vaccines. Uh, They're in different stages of development. Two of them are in the third and final trials now. Uh, they've gone into 88,000 arms, mostly in Cuba, but Mexico, Iran, and a couple of other countries are also By June, uh, Cuba expects it should be able to go to the WTO, WHO sorry, uh, and ask the World Health Organization to go over the all of their scientific papers and all of the test results and verify that this, these two Cuban uh, vaccines are good to go. Uh, they will be by the end of this year. The plan is there's no reason to doubt that it will that they won't able to accomplish it. They will have all Cubans inoculated. Uh, They will have several million doses in excess produced that will go to poor countries at a reasonable rate. They do want some return on all of the investment and the effort they've made to get these vaccines uh, up to scratch and then out. Uh, But it's going to be a lot lower than what Pfizer and Moderna and others are are, uh, charging uh, countries at this stage and the the attempt is to make sure that the poorest countries get access to these vaccines which is in Canada's interest because at the moment we are uh, in Canada very very focused as we should be very focused on getting our people vaccinated here uh, but we're not very focused on how we can help the vaccination globally go forward so that into the situation down the road, where Canadians who have Canadians traveling to other countries or other people from other countries traveling to Canada who haven't been vaccinated uh, suddenly can pass it on. Uh, so anyway, it's a it's a terrain where the Cubans have uh, gone forward. There's one other type of vaccine that I want to mention to you, which I don't even think is being considered in Canada yet. It is a, a vaccine that would be administered to people who've had COVID-19. And the idea is they're from their studies, they've already been able to tell that uh, you can have COVID-19 and survive it, but it may not actually allow you to have the level of antibodies uh, built up to prevent you from getting it again. That's something that seems to be particular about uh, COVID-19. And so they have in the second trial now a vaccine that's going to hopefully provide that level of immunology uh, to those who have already, uh, already had
0: uh, COVID-19. Now, and Rick, just, yeah. Rick you, you have argued in uh, some articles that uh, Cuban expertise could be used to help Canadian doctors. Yes. And I've yes. done I've done interviews with a local doctor, and he described the international network of expertise being used here in Northumberland, and I assume the same expertise is being used by all doctors all over the world. Why do you think what Cuba has to offer is better than what our local doctors are getting, and is available to doctors across the country? Yeah, maybe
1: I would reframe that question slightly, Rob. I don't think it's better per se. I just think, I think that, let me just take the current situation we're in now. We have, what, two or three variants uh, loose in Canada now. Uh, And in Ontario, I think that I'm hearing now that the variants are actually becoming the greatest percentage of uh, new infections in our province. Uh, what I'm also deducing from what I'm reading is that the, there are more younger people and more people in general getting sick, seriously sick, from these new variants uh, that the ICU units that barely uh, were able to deal with the second wave back in January, February will be overrun shortly uh, with the number of patients. So you, you probably heard that one of the things Ontario... Ontario government did only three or four days ago was to say that we're going to start moving these critically ill patients around Ontario and we will do it against the will of the patients and the families who live near to the hospitals where the patients may be currently found. Um, I think this is draconian. I think it's drastic and I think it's unnecessary. Uh, It's true that Frontline workers in Canada, healthcare workers in Canada, are very experienced professionals. Uh, they've been at this now for more than a year. Some of them have caught COVID-19 in the process. Others have been stretched out from uh, all the overtime that they're putting in to try to deal with patients. Um, I think that the Cubans now in a different context from the one that I mentioned to you back last year with the Indigenous populations could come, could be invited to come, for instance, to Ontario and bolster our frontline workers uh, in this following way to stop this uh, sending of patients around against their will to other hospitals that may be far away from from the, the, the family members. Uh, They could, as uh, Sunnybrook in Toronto has already done, set up a field hospital in the grounds. Most of these hospitals, uh, the one here in Northumberland, for instance, have uh, ground space in which uh, field hospitals can be erected in fairly short time. And they could then uh, invite Cuba to send pandemic-trained doctors and nurses to help staff these extra ICU units that are going to be needed within probably two weeks or so. Uh, so here, here is one very concrete way in which uh, Cuba could help, and it's not—it's not, it's not uh, that the Cubans are better necessarily. It's that they are trained, and we've run out or we've exhausted our frontline people, and we need help, and they're there. Several hundred of them have just returned from Mexico City where they've helped out to bring that situation into, if not control, some sort of stability. Uh, So I just don't understand why uh, an invitation has not been issued uh, to the Cubans to help out for an interim period of time, be it one or two months. Um, They've got the skills. Uh, The language is no problem. They've dealt with Languages in forty countries and medical languages, you know, is often English. Uh, so many of the doctors from Cuba speak English, uh, so that's no problem. Uh, whether or not they have to go through some period of control when they come into Canada, probably they do. Uh, but if they were invited now, when when the situation gets difficult, particularly in about two to three weeks' time, they will have gone through. Uh, the the uh, isolation necessary, and they would be ready to help uh, to to staff these. Uh, what I'm suggesting is the route they should, that Ontario should go is to set up some of these field hospitals, as has happened in Italy, as has happened in other countries around the world.
0: No, yeah. you, you wrote in a in another article that we do not have any publicly owned pharmaceutical companies in Canada. Did we ever have one, and should the government be involved in a private sector business, and why? Yes, uh, that's a very good question,
1: and we did have one. We had, in in the 70s and 80s, the the government owned Cannot Labs, and Cannot Labs, uh, if you, I can't remember all that they've done back then, but they came up with uh, some uh, inoculations and... uh, for various diseases back in the 70s and 80s. They were on the forefront, the cutting edge, of developing some of these. Uh, And it was Canadian, 100% owned by the government. Um, Unfortunately, in the, oh, I guess it was the uh, late 90s, uh, they decided that the whole question about whether government should be involved in these types of things, you know, came up and the government of the day decided, no, that's really, should we let the private sector do that? So they sold it, sold Connaught Labs off. And uh, very shortly after that, uh, the, the structure of Connaught Labs was folded up and uh, a private uh, big pharma in the United States took over uh, the work that Connaught had been doing in Canada. So we have not had. Uh, any presence of a publicly controlled biopharma uh, in Canada uh, that is capable of uh, researching, producing vaccines for our own population. And that's why, Rob, we've been facing this situation where uh, Biden administration, which is a godsend compared to Trump, but nonetheless, they are focusing on getting their folks uh, inoculated first. Uh, They've been sort of hesitant to allow much to go up towards Canada. and uh, So it's put us in a difficult situation where our vaccines are running behind the variants at this particular point in time, causing a very difficult situation for for us.
0: What's next then for the Nobel nomination? Um, Where does the process go from here and what role will Northumberland chapter be playing? Well, uh, the
1: Period to enter the nominations and that runs from october through to the end of january so that time period now is over there can be no new nominations but as i mentioned to you before approximately 50 nominations have come in from countries all over the world um, so we have uh, uh we have been doing a little bit of follow-up uh, to try to let uh, canadians know Uh, about uh, the fact that this nomination is in and why it was done. Um, So we have a a more recent blog uh, up on the Council of Canadians uh, website, which uh, describes uh, what's been accomplished in the last few months. Uh, Now, from here on in, Rob, the situation is that the panel in Oslo is deliberating. So obviously, there are nominations for that come in every year that they, they receive in Oslo. So this is just one, if you will, uh, even though it has 50 nominations associated with it. Uh, so they spend the time now, and uh, up until September, making their final decision as to who indeed will get the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize nomination. There's not much we can do uh, as the Northumberland Council at this stage uh to um to to uh to have any influence on this in fact in fact it's better not to influence them (laughs) just let them do their work and they'll come up with what the decision that that they wish to come up with uh in october of this year for the next one and uh so uh we probably will we are keeping our eye on the situation uh here in ontario and uh Some other parts of the country uh and have i personally have sent uh some letters to the editor etc saying that uh you know this is this is becoming a very difficult situation uh we should uh, our political leaders rob ford in particular who said all options are on the table uh, should take look into this option because it's probably one of the best options we have right now to save Canadian lives over the next two to three months.
0: Rick, if you were a betting man, what do you think your chances are of, of uh, being successful? Good question,
1: Rob. Uh, if I were a betting man, I think it would be uh, Cuba's remarkable efforts over the last year would be up there. I think it will be one of the finalists, if you will, for that panel to consider. Uh, Obviously, I hope that it is the winner, uh, but I'm very sure that there is no other, there's been no other effort anywhere in the world comparable to the care being provided by thousands of Cuban doctors for people who've been sick in all sorts of countries from Europe, Africa, Asia, and uh, Latin America. Um, And the the development by this embargoed country of vaccines, which will soon be out, that whole process was happening last year as well. Um, I think uh, when the uh, Oslo panel looks at the contribution that this one country has made, uh, saving lives, they've attended more than a million people over uh over this time period in other countries uh i think it's going to be very very high on their selection list obviously we're hoping that it will be the one selected Um, the other option i guess rob uh is the actual uh big pharma companies themselves who you know received hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds to go ahead and develop some of the vaccines that are on the, uh, that we're seeing now. Uh, that, I guess, is uh, a possibility as well. Although a lot of their work uh, and a lot of what we're seeing now is actually outside of the 2021 uh, framework for for last year. Um, so I, I, I still have I still believe that the Cuban nomination is one of the
0: ones that is the most likely to win. Cuba has a lot of stigmatism surrounding it, and politicians um, obviously like to think about the political side of any decision. Is it really that surprising that the federal and the provincial governments are not uh, inviting them, inviting the Cubans to come up here and assist us because of the potential political fallout uh, due to some of the stereotypical or the stigmatized uh, ideas some people have in this country about Cuba and what it represents. Well, that, that's a, that's a, I don't know how much time you have here, Rob, but that is a very, very big, uh, juicy question, if I could say, if I can say that. Um, can you give us a short answer? <laughs>
1: try to be short. Uh, l- let me just say, of course, we had Trump, right, for the first part of COVID-19 sitting in in Washington. Canada was under fire from Trump. They didn't want to rock the vote. Uh, so uh, Trump uh, at one point in February, uh, the State Department sent out messages to all sorts of countries uh, in the Americas, saying we suggest you don't invite any Cubans to come, and if you do, we will think about sanctions against you. Well, fortunately, most Caribbean and Latin American countries that had the Cubans come but got that message, they had them come anyway. Uh, but Canada did not. Um, so uh, we do have a bigger problem here. Uh, partly i guess we were under the thumb of trump at the time Uh, but now with biden uh, the situation has changed in washington i think that canada would have more freedom uh, to be able to express some other opinion about how the cubans uh, have uh, interacted with the situation over the last 12 months Um, i think that uh, Canadians, I think more than a million Canadians on a normal year visit Cuba as tourists. Uh, So Canada is well aware of Cuba. Uh, I think many Canadians know that Cuba has a very different government than ours, um, and we probably wouldn't uh, find it that uh, palatable to be living under a, a, a strong um, government of that sort, but on the other hand, we have to consider six decades in which the U.S. is trying to destroy Cuba and has not yet done so. What government they could have developed if they had not been under these uh, in, invasions and economic embargoes is a whole another question. Uh, but. Uh, Yes, to answer your question, I am not totally surprised, particularly the Conservative premiers uh, would not want to see a Cuban delegation come to Canada. But I think it's more than just a style of government uh, that is not favoured by, particularly in Conservative uh, conservative areas, Uh, but it's got to do also uh, with uh, two or three other things, Rob. One is that uh, we, and I'm talking about some of our healthcare-providing leaders as well as politicians, we cannot countenance that a small third world world island country could possibly have anything We look to Australia. Maybe we look to England. If there's some little breakthrough they've made there, you know, clinics for long haulers in Britain, great. But they don't mention the fact that the Cubans are working on clinics for long haulers as well. Uh, it's just a blind spot and a feeling that, you know, somehow we'd be embarrassed if we actually invited Cubans to come here and help us out. Because after all, we've got a stellar health care system. How, how is it possible uh, that another small island country like that has anything to teach us? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated terrain that we're in. Uh, your question is a good one. Uh, I have been uh, frustrated by the fact that we do not get many responses uh, from political leaders across the country or even some of the key spokespeople in the medical departments. Um, But, uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, they're, we're hoping it never gets to this, but if it does, we're hoping that they will see the light that there's really not too many other places to turn to at this late date. It should have happened earlier, but now we're at the late date, and at this late date, there's not a lot of other things to do here. If you want to save Canadian lives, uh, it's
0: time to invite in the Cubans. Rick Arnold, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And your questions have been right on the money. That was Rick Arnold, a board member from the Northumberland chapter of the Council of Canadians, talking about the nomination of the Henry Reeve Brigade for a Nobel Peace Prize. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me. And I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today.